Well, good morning. Thank you to Sarah here in the auditorium, and thank you to Jordan in the venue uh, for the updates. Many good things going on in our church for which we are so very thankful. Love that update from Pastor Pablo in the bilingual ministry. That's a ministry that's growing here in our church, and uh, we're grateful for the opportunity we have to, to reach that community so well as we continue to move forward in this capital opportunity. Well, hey, election day is already on Tuesday. You realize that? You ready? For robocalls to end? <laughs> I get them from Colorado and from Nebraska. You must envy me. Raise your hand with me as we go into election season here. Uh, if you would say that America has a civility problem today. Okay, I see just about every hand raised. You are in really good company. 95% of Americans in a recent study indicated across the widest of political spectrums that they believe that we have a major civility problem in America today. It's one of the few things we agree on. We disagree as to who is the source of the civility problem, of course. But that's one of the things that Americans agree on. There's a major civility problem going on in our nation today. And I, I'd like to just speak on that for just a couple moments. We referred to this just a bit last week. But it seems that last um, couple weeks, maybe 10, 12 days ago, and then last Saturday, our nation hit a new low of sorts when it comes to civility. As it was about... 10 or 11 days ago now that uh, a man was caught developing 12 pipe bombs for people that he was opposed to who represented policies that were different than his. That's civility problem on steroids, isn't it? Then, a week ago yesterday, a small peaceful synagogue was shot up. Killing spree in which 11 peaceful Jewish worshipers were killed and four officers were wounded as they were responding and many, many other people were wounded as well. I was personally heartbroken. I don't know about you. It was difficult for me even to preach last Sunday. I know we hear about this cycle all the time and the new cycle is terrible, but those two particularly affected me. As a Christian and as American, it was saddening to me. These, of course, are the most heinous recent examples, but make no mistake, the outrage in America today affects us all, doesn't it? Cable news and radio hosts just shout at each other these days. Let me give you a few examples. Hecklers routinely harass and interrupt graduation and university speakers today. Politicians routinely shout at and insult those who differ from them, insult their political opponents. Teenagers gossip and they body shame one another, not face to face, not behind a few people's backs, but on social media where thousands of others can see that body shaming happening. Polling places in 2016, many polling places in America erupted into shouting matches, police being called, and arrests being made. 
Sadly, many Christians have chosen to join in the fights. Young people in the audience today, on behalf of the old people in the audience today, I'm sorry. I am sorry that we have not led better. Young people, I would want you to know that it hasn't always been this way. I'm not that old, at least I don't think of myself as. I'm right in the middle. And yet I can vividly remember, as a kid and as a young adult, having, having strong vocal disagreements with people who held different positions than mine on politics or on religion. People came from different cultural backgrounds than mine. And we disagreed strongly. And then after we were done disagreeing, after we were done with the debate, whatever it might be, we would shake hands. Say thank you for teaching me something fresh. Sometimes even hug. Imagine that. It wasn't always this way. And so again, I say to young people, I am sorry that we have not led more effectively. It feels like a distant memory when I used to have those kinds of conversations with people who believe very differently than, than, than me, but they did happen. And I think uh, what happened in our nation over the past week and a half serves as a little bit of a warning for us. I personally am not really concerned about how we're doing at Carnegie Free. I could be wrong, but my sense at Carnegie Free is this is a warm place of hospitality for all kinds of people. I really, really believe that, and I hear it from people on a regular basis from different demographics and different backgrounds and different socioeconomic status, that you come in here and you feel like you matter. And I pray it would always look like that, that you know you always matter in here no matter what happens out there, because we here are seeking to be representatives of Christ. I pray that you would always feel that. But I'm going to speak for a moment today on these cultural issues of the day because they become huge on the national scene, and we are not immune to them on the local scene as we learned at UNK even last week when racist signs were spread across that campus. And I know the old saying is true, there go I, but by the... We all can go there. So what we'd like to do here, though, this morning is turn in God's story, our story, to the most important message in the entire Bible. And as we look at the most important message in the entire Bible, we're going to look at the implications of it for this cause of incivility in our culture today. And my strong belief that the answer to incivility in our culture today, at least for the church, is nothing more and nothing less than the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. I actually have the gall to believe that. As you turn to Philippians 2 with me right now, this is the pinnacle of God's story. What we're going to look at, this summary of the cross and the resurrection from Philippians 2, is the highest point in God's story. It is the Mount Everest of mountains. It is the freedom tower of skyscrapers. And it is the highlight of our story as well. Verses 6 through 11 of Philippians 2 speaks to what Jesus did, what he accomplished, 
and verses 1 through 5 speaks to the implications for how we are to live, you and me. We're going to take it in reverse order, starting with Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. You'll see these words on the screen as we generally always put the verses though that we utilize in the screen as we go. But I encourage you, if you have a Bible, bring it with you on Sunday morning and mark it up as we go. Because these passages though that we select in God's story, our story, are critical ones for you to come back to again and again. Starting at verse 5, Philippians 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset, have the same attitude that is in Christ Jesus. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, yes, even death on that old, rugged Roman cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess, every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen. I wonder if you'd pray with me as we launch in. Father, we thank you for giving your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the cross that gives us life. We thank you for the resurrection that you conquered the grave and you are in the business of resurrecting us as well. Thank you, God, that you are alive and well today and you are powerful to overcome what ails us today. Would you speak to us this morning, both here in the auditorium and in the venue? We invite your presence. We ask for your help. We ask, God, that you would make us salty. Make us salty, as preservative in a decaying world around us. We give ourselves to you in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Again, this morning I want to speak to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, but I'm going to speak to it in a way from an angle that is different than I have ever spoken to it before. It may be different than you've heard it spoken of before it may not be, but it's different than I've ever spoken to it but before, and it's looking first at what Jesus did, and second, the results for us as it relates to the incivility that we are facing today. Verse 7 says, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant. He came as an ordinary human being and chose to become subject to us. He made himself, as some translations say it, a bondservant, even a slave for us. He made himself a servant. Then verse 8, he humbled himself and became obedient even unto death. He took the lowest place and became obedient unto death, and therefore God exalted him to the highest place. The grave couldn't hold him. God resurrects him from the grave, and he exalts him to his rightful position where he was before he incarnated the, this world. You see, what this passage teaches is that Jesus voluntarily chose to empty himself during his short years on earth. For 33, 33 years, he emptied himself of some of his divine prerogatives, some of the free use of his divine prerogatives, so as to empathize with us. And in emptying himself, he chose not to hold on to the full use of his divine power. He limited the use of his divine power for these short years on earth. He was rich, 
but became poor to empathize with us. He was all-knowing, and yet he chose during those 33 years to limit his knowledge. He was, from eternity past, always and everywhere present, yet for those short years, he determined to be localized to the cities and towns and villages of modern-day Palestine and Israel. He was, in very nature, God, totally, magnif totally magnificent, completely other than us, and yet he became subject to Jewish and Roman authorities who crucified him. Indeed, he became subject to you and me as our sins took him to the cross. Like, if we believe this, he became subject, submitted himself to some degree to us, to our sins. It was them that took God most high to the cross. You know, there's an increasing number of people today that argue Jesus was a created being, the highest creation of God. There's Christians who amazingly believe that today. Not sure if they'd actually be Christians if they believed it, to be honest. Do not believe that. Okay, read John 1 or Philippians 2 or Colossians 1, or Hebrews 1. Jesus was God of gods. He's the second person of the triune God. One God, three persons we talked about well weeks ago. He spoke and the universe leapt into existence as he spoke with the Father. He is magnificent and completely other, not a created being. And I'm very careful to use this word, but people who are saying that Jesus is a created being, that is an ancient heresy of the greatest magnitude. Do not believe that. The Bible does not teach it. He is God, and the reason I mention that is because God became flesh, emptying himself for you and me, limiting the free use of his divine attributes. He downsized from his throne in heaven to a shack in Palestine and became a humble son, a friend, a servant, a slave, a carpenter, a sacrifice for the world. It's the story. It's amazing. This is the gospel message. It was the most beautiful, most amazing act in all of history. Even a statesman as great as Mahatma Gandhi, who studied Christianity at length, but to our knowledge did not, did not ever become a Christian, said this. That Gandhi was deeply influenced by the teachings of Christ and his nonviolent movement in India he didn't become a Christian to our knowledge, but he said this of Jesus, a man who was completely innocent, who offered himself as a sacrifice for the good of others, including his enemies, and became the ransom of the world. It was the perfect act. It really was. It's never been du duplicated. It never could be duplicated. Only God could do what Jesus did. And this indeed is the gospel message. The gospel message that begins with the cross and the resurrection of Jesus goes like this. It is the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ which pardons sinners like us, says forgiven to sinners like us, and then welcomes us into God's family, welcomes us into God's love and God's presence. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you ever wonder what we mean when we say the word gospel, 
which is said oftentimes in churches, it's this. You are welcomed into all of God's love and presence through the sacrifice of Jesus. And if you receive that by faith, asking him for forgiveness of your sins, you are now a part of his family. This, by the way, is also what we mean by good news. Gospel means good news. That's also what is meant by the word evangelical. Raise your hand if you think evangelical has to do with voting or politics. Okay, you guys are wise, so you're not raising your hands. You know I'm about to hit you. <laughs> it does. It has nothing to do with that. That's a new invention in the past 10 years or something. Evangelical comes from the Greek word eangulion, from which we get evangelical, which means good news. That's it. That's all evangelical means. People of the good news, that's what we are, people of the gospel, people who are committed to the good news, the good teaching, the good life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know why you came to church today. Maybe someone dragged you to church today, but maybe this is the reason you came to church today, to hear that message, that this is what God invites you into, his family, by the death of his son, our Savior, God, King Lord Jesus Christ, and you also are invited, there would be no better day than, to, than today to receive his love, receive the gospel. This is our cornerstone, and so much more could be said about the gospel, but again, well, what I want to do here though, this morning with the remainder of our time is speak from the cross and the res resurrection about how this can cure what ails us as a culture today. Looking now at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, these are the implications for what Jesus did. Here's the application. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit, and having the same mind, having the same love. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Again, your attitude, your mindset, should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but looked out for others' interests before his own. Well, what if we did that? Like, what if we did? Very briefly, I'd like to suggest, again, just as a warning, not because I think this is an issue here, it's a warning. Because there go I, but by the grace of God. Here are six applications from the Passion Week for how we live more civilly in 2018. They challenge me, each one of them. They speak to me. And I'm guessing they might speak to some of you. Here's the first look in the mirror not out the window. Begin with this. Look in the mirror, not out the window. Who is at fault in our current political climate and cultural climate of anger and hatred? Is it this politician or this politician? Is it this radio personality 
or this TV personality? It's me. It's me. I'm at fault. I'm the one to blame. Because I have not always spoken and acted and thought with the attitude of Jesus Christ, my Lord. You see, the Bible would tell us that if we want a more civil home, if we want a more civil city, if we want a more civil nation, there is something that each and every one of us can contribute to that, and it begins by looking at the man or the woman in the mirror. That's where it begins. The Bible is sure to tell us this, that Jesus Christ went to the cross for my stuff personally. And Jesus Christ went to the cross for your stuff personally. And if we are to look at the cross, the next place that we are to look at is our own lives, not at someone else's. He went to the cross for me, not to the person that I'm starting to nudge right next to me. He went to the cross for me and for you. And so what we do if we want to move toward a more civil nation is this. Remove the two-by-four plank out of my eye before I even think to look at the speck in someone else's eye. We begin by looking in the mirror, not out the window. This understands the cross and what he did for us. And then we humbly proceed to listen before speaking. Especially in a culture as loud as ours has gotten, there is a great, great power in listening, isn't there? You, you meet someone who truly listens, it's a demonstration of love in a culture that is so good at speaking, so good at yelling. The very first act of love just might be listening to someone and seeking to understand someone who is different than us. When we listen to and we try to learn from someone, then we are serving them. Because everybody I've ever met wants to have their story heard. They want to be listened to. I think one of the saddest realities of our current cultural climate is we are intentionally or unintentionally putting ourselves in these echo chambers where we're just hearing our voice bounce off the wall. And we're just being surrounded by people who look and think and speak and act just like us, which makes it very, very difficult to learn from anyone who might be different. And unfortunately, even worse than that, what ends up happening is we start to look down at people because we're only looking at them from a distance. A couple years ago, a man named Jeff Vanderstelt was here, and he led a conference, and in that conference, he made an offhanded remark, and I don't remember much else from the conference, but I will, never, I will never forget the remark he made that day. I think it was an answer to someone's question, and he said this, if you look at people from a distance, you will either idolize them or demonize them. You'll either put them up on a pedestal, or you'll see them as the problem." But if you get up close with people, you begin to humanize them. You look at people from a distance, you idolize or demonize them. You get up close with people who are different, then you begin to humanize them. You begin to have an opportunity to learn from them as fellow participants made in the image of God who are still eligible for the kingdom of God. We do this by humbly listening. Tell me how you're raised. Tell me why it's unique to have your experience in America 
compared to my experience. Tell me what it's like to be a farmer and, and not being sure if you're going to make your ends meet. Like, that's brand new for me. I've just come here in the last three years. It's brand new for me. And it's been fascinating to learn from farmers. It's been so helpful for me. Tell me what it's like to be raised in an urban environment. Interesting. Nobody's ever asked me that. Tell me what it's like to be raised this way in America. Tell me how you came to those conclusions. Can I please learn from you? This is Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Doing nothing out of selfish motives, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, we think of others before ourselves, valuing others before us, looking not only to our own interests, but to others. You look to someone else's interests, First and foremost, by getting to know their story, listening, putting yourselves in their shoes, and saying, would you please help me understand? This is the very attitude of Jesus Christ, who was in very nature God, yet he humbly served you and me. Number three, perhaps most importantly for those of us who are online, is this, double check for anger, especially online. Double check for anger before you push post. Double check for anger before you push send. Double check for anger in a conversation or remark behind someone's back. Love the way Peter put it in 1 Peter 3. He says, do not repay evil for evil or insult for insult, but repay with blessing. This is the Christian way. This is the uniquely different Christian way that you will not find anywhere else in this world. Because to this you were called so that you would inherit a blessing, not to trade evil for evil or insult for insult, but with blessing. Wow, what if we did that? Incredible. I tell you, when I get angry is this. It's someone did not look out for my interests, my all-important interests. My interests, well, were not being met, so I get angry. That's Philippians 2. Or somebody insulted me, or they misunderstood me, or they misrepresented my all-important opinions. That's 1 Peter 3. And then what I am tempted to do in that moment is to hit back with another insult. But Jesus was silent before his accusers. Whoa. Jesus was silent before his accusers. And so, Jesus, would you please give me courage to be silent where necessary, to be humble where necessary, because God exalted you, Lord Jesus, to the highest place, and so also we will inherit a blessing as we do not trade evil for evil or insult for insult, but with blessing. You see, friends, we don't have to hit back. You know that? We don't have to hit back because our identity is secured in Christ like, it doesn't matter what someone says about us. It doesn't matter what someone else believes about you or me because our identity is firm in him. He has conquered all of our sin. He has risen himself up from the grave so our victory is forever secure and we have nothing to fear. Our identity is not what someone else thinks about us. It's not what we have. It's not what someone else says about us. Our identity is rooted in nothing less than this. You are a son or daughter of God invited into all of God's family, all of his love and his presence and his embrace. By his resurrecting power, he is resurrecting us. That's where our identity is. And we get to invite people into that hope. I mean, how awesome is that? 
that we get to invite people who are different, who haven't yet come to the same settled convictions as us, into that hope. How do you do inviting someone in who you really ticked at? How does that go for you? About as well as it goes for me. Right? Like it's almost impossible to reach out to someone in love and simultaneously be angry with them. They're just contradictory emotions. And it's an amazing thing. People have a way of remembering what they felt from me more than they remember what I've said. Don't know about you, but that's the way it is with me. And of course, the thing about anger that's so powerful, especially online, is once you push post, you cannot get it back. And people say online things that mama told us not to ever say to anyone. So double check before you push send, please. Anger and hatred have this way of spiraling down in the worst possible ways, in the worst possible effects. Listen to the way C.S. Lewis put it right after World War II as he's kind of counseling the British after the carnage of World War II at the hands of Nazi Germany. He says this, the Christian trying to treat everyone kindly finds himself liking more and more people as he goes, including even people he could not even have imagined liking himself at the beginning. Isn't that cool? Like you just choose to treat people with kindness and you like more people. You have more happiness in your heart. The same, the same spiritual law, however, works terribly in the opposite direction. The Germans, perhaps at first, ill-treated the Jews because they hated them. Afterwards, they hated them much more because they had ill-treated them. The more cruel you are, the more you will hate. And the more you hate, the more cruel you will become. And so on, and so on, in a vicious cycle forever. Kindness compounds and spirals upward. Hatred compounds and spirals downward. This is perhaps why Jesus was bold enough to say to us, when you call someone a fool, when you call someone an idiot, when you reserve worse names for them, you're in danger of the fires of hell. Not my words. Jesus' words. So God, please help me not to fight against people. Leads us to number four. Remember who the battle is against and remember who has already won the battle. Jesus sacrificed himself for our sin. He paid it all. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He won the victory. He won the victory. The victory's already been won. He defeated sin and Satan. We don't have to win any victory. The victory has been won by Jesus. If there is any victory, if there is any battle that we still have to fight, who's the battle against? Anyone? It's against Satan and against our own sin. Is the battle against flesh and blood? No. The battle's not against flesh and blood, it's against Satan and sin. And Jesus has already won the battle. 
At Passion Week, he won the battle. Our victory is secured. The thing that's so incredible to me about this, the way he, he won that battle is he even gave himself in that battle for his enemies. You think about Passion Week where he went around and he washed the 24 stinky, dirty feet of his 12 disciples, including one by the name of Judas, who would betray him for a few pieces of silver, and he still washed his feet. Or you think about what he did next. He goes to the cross, and he's got nails in his wrists and in his, his feet, and he sees these soldiers who have put him up on that cross, and now he's naked, and they're throwing dice for his clothes while he's naked. And what does he do? He looks at them, and he looks up to heaven, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Like, you only get this confidence from knowing that your victory is assured, and there's nothing that anyone can really take away from you. There is nothing that anyone of inestimable value, of eternal value, can ever take away from you if you are rooted in Jesus Christ, so there is no fear for those who are in the family of God. Which means my conversations, my job is not to win a debate. My job is not to prove how right I am. My job is not to vilify people I disagree with. My job is to lovingly invite people toward Christ in my thoughts, in my words, and in my deeds. Now, we still might disagree on any number of different issues, and hopefully we can, through practice, learn how to disagree more agreeably and hug, and that's okay. It's good to disagree. We grow through disagreement. We get stronger through disagreement. But we never battle against people. We need not fear losing because ultimately Jesus has already won it all. Real quickly here, no, two more. Vote and then pray for whoever is elected. Here's how we act with civility in 2018. We vote and then we pray for whoever might be elected. If you study world history at all, if you study current events at all, you understand that our American experiment is exceedingly rare. We get to live in a republic. We get to live in a democracy where we have a vote. We get to take a part in the process. And so many Americans have died to give us that privilege. To, to not vote is to miss on our civic duty. It, it's truly to miss out even on, on the beauty of what it is to be in this country. And then after voting, what if we did this? What if we prayed for our elected officials half as much as we talked about them? Come on, anyone? Anyone? Like, whoever's elected to senator or governor in the great state of Nebraska, whoever's elected to president two years from now, what if we prayed for them? What if we prayed today for our president half as much as we talked about them? Wouldn't that be different? We're not mostly Republicans. We're not mostly Democrats. We're a third way. We're Christians. And we're Nebraska nice, for crying out loud. And listen, it may not be for everyone, but it's pretty good for us, ain't it? It's pretty good for us, ain't it? So we act a different way. 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings... This is Nero. Paul's praying for Nero, who killed him in two years. 
Nero's way worse than Trump or Obama or Bush or anyone else you'd want to name. He killed Paul in two years. He says, pray for all people, for kings and for all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and it pleases God our Savior, who wants all people, even kings, to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And then finally, lastly, and I'll wrap up here, admit when you've acted or spoken unkindly and then apologize immediately for that. This is the third way of Christianity, that when we've acted or spoken unkindly, we humble ourselves and apologize immediately. It's prideful people who cannot apologize. It's Christian people who do apologize. It's Christian people who humbly recognize, I have missed the mark as I would be expected to do because my nature is fundamentally sinful. <laughs> I have a sinful nature, so I will sin. I'm sorry. Actually, say it. Let me read an example, and we'll close here with this. This is from Carl Medeiros' book, Speaking of Jesus. Medeiros is a pastor in Colorado Springs. He was formerly a missionary in Lebanon to Muslims. Uh, Colorado, Colorado has a reputation now as being really liberal, doesn't it? Well, Colorado Springs is quite conservative. And he's, he's teaching this very, in a really pre-conservative city. And um, he's teaching an evangelism class there. And as he's teaching an evangelism class, what he wants to do in this class is introduce these young students to people who believe something different than them so they will learn how to reach out to people who are different than them. Novel concept. And so he brings into his class a man who is a representative of the far left social movement in Colorado Springs. And there's many students in the class who hate this guy because of what he's represented publicly over the years. And he invites this man in to guest lecture for the first half of his class, and this is how it went down. Medeiros writes, I'd like Richard to take the first half of the lecture tonight, and I want you to be respectful and attentive, okay? I sat down, and there was such a hush in, in the room when I did. The entire class seemed to be holding its collective breath. Thank you, Carl, Richard said from the podium. Sir, a hand rose near the middle of the class. Yes, Richard responded. I held my breath, ready for anything to happen. A man stood up, wiped his face with his hands, and began, I wanted to apologize to you. His voice shook. That's really not necessary, Richard said. Yes, it is, said the man. It is necessary for me. I have judged you in the past. I thought you were the bad guy. I took part in the slander and the mudslinging. Look, that's okay, Richard tried to say. No, sir, it's, it's not okay. Jesus taught us to love our enemies, and he taught us not to judge. Until I started taking this class, I spent my entire life fighting against people and policies. I fought against your movement, and I said and did things that were not right. I have disobeyed Jesus by judging you and by doing terrible things to you, and I wanted to say... The room was dead silent. You could almost hear people blinking. I wanted to say that I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? The man's voice cracked. Well, uh, Richard's face colored, and he fingered his collar. I could see his throat working, trying to say something, but he was quiet for a moment. Finally, he spoke, and I could hear the strain in his voice from where I sat. I forgive you. He said. This is the third way of Christ. We're all going to make lots of mistakes. We're all going to say things that we regret. 
We're all going to do things that we regret. The world covers them over, ignores them, rationalizes, pridefully says, well, you did this to me. Christians, look people in the eyes and humbly say, I'm sorry. I know that Christ has forgiven me. I have nothing to lose. I'm sorry. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, how we thank you that we really have nothing to lose because of the cross and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. You have brought us into your family. Lord Jesus, you paid the ultimate price for us. And you say in your word that nothing can ever separate us now from the love of God. Our victory is secure through the resurrection of our Savior Jesus because he conquered the grave You are now resurrecting us. You're beginning the work of transforming us and you will not finish until it's complete. Oh, we thank you. Thank you, Lord, that we live out of that identity. Would you give us courage now to live out of that in love for others, even now as we prepare for communion. We praise you, God, for your forgiveness. We give you glory and thanks. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Amen.